What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we have a bonus episode for you because I was just on the ZeroX Research Podcast to give the Solana bull case. Um, I tried to bring a lot of that Lightspeed energy. So ZeroX Research is another podcast from BlockWorks. It's hosted by some of our research analysts. If you don't know BlockWorks Research, you got to check them out. They're the best research team in the space. It's where I learn a lot of my information from. They give out free information such on this podcast, but also on Twitter. Then they have subscription service where you can get unique insights on data, governance, and a whole lot more. Uh, their research reports are unbelievable. Um, if you do DM me, I can give you a discount code by the way so hit me up this podcast that they have is usually for analysts that just go back and forth about what's going on that week from governance changes and protocols and also just like what they find interesting they do like the hot seat cool throne it's a lot of fun and to me it's one of the most unique podcasts in the space so definitely give it a follow if you like the episode let me know and now let's get to the show all right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We got a great analyst episode lined up for you today with one small twist. We're joined by Matt as usual, but this time we're joined with Garrett Harper, the host, co-host of Lightspeed, a Solana-focused uh, podcast in the BlockWorks family. It's an excellent series. Uh, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes, but Garrett, thanks a ton for joining us today. Uh, we wanted to drag you into this just because... With all the, everything going on, the recent market movements, you know, Solana and its ecosystem has been very, very exciting. So we had to bring in the expert. Uh, but I wanted to do a slight little twist today. So instead of just talking about all the good things, uh, let's, let's uh, do a little battle testing ourselves here and do a little bit of an accus accusation audit. Um, Sam, Matt, and I will kind of throw out a, a random, uh, a somewhat random uh, accusation about the quality of Solana in some way, shape, or form and want to hear your defense to this piece. So I, I'll go first here. Uh, which is a little bit uncharacter uncharacteristic for me is focusing a little bit on the NFT ecosystem. But uh, Metaplex controls about 99% of Solana NFTs. And I, I want to get your take on is like why that's the case, first of all, uh, to get a little bit of background on it. Um, and, you know, what the negative implications are for that. And if it really is going to continue to kind of plague or impact the Solana NFT ecosystem going forward. Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm happy to be here. You know, actually, my first two podcasts I ever did were with you three. Um, on uh, on Empire. So I'm pumped to be back. Also, I used to produce the show, so it's kind of fun to be on it now. Um, all right. Accusation audit for Solana. Can I recruit Mert real quick? Because I know he'd absolutely destroy you guys. <laughs> um, okay. So Metaplex. The thing is with Metaplex, essentially it's a program on Solana that 99% of NFTs go through. So on Solana, they separate state and programs. So it's really easy to use programs, which is really cool, but it often means that you have concentration and kind of centralization around one program in some ways. That wouldn't really be a big deal, except that Metaplex is the sole party that controls this program right now. And it's like, okay, well, why does this matter? Well, back in, I think it was May this year, they're actually going to implement new fees on like protocol transfers and updates. But there's some NFTs, for example, that updated like daily or hourly based on the weather, et cetera. And people are going to be like, this isn't feasible anymore with my NFTs. So essentially, you don't want to have centralized control around these NFTs. Thing is, interfaces will be coming to Solana soon. Um, they're... Runtime B2 is basically an update that's coming to Solana. In some ways, like as a user, no one's going to be able to tell the difference. But as a developer, you will. It's going to make things a lot cheaper, but also it's going to enable things like interfaces. If you think about interfaces, it's kind of like on Ethereum, you have the ERC721 standard. If you're an exchange like Coinbase, you can use that interface to interact with different NFTs. Well, on Solana, if you wanted to use a new NFT standard right now, it's not going to integrate with anything. So if you wanted your NFT to show up on Magic Eden, that's not going to be the case. Instead, you've got to use Metaplex's standard not an interface and then it will show up but that leads to centralization problems so it's a, it is a little bit of an issue today um but metaplex one it's in their interest to make this protocol work so they already have something where they want to make this immutable where it can actually change but two i think like interfaces coming in in the future will change that does the release of like um so nft the backpack x nfts in that whole world does that change us at all like do those rely on metaplex at all or it does uh backpack kind of refresh and give a new interface that people can interact with it's a good question that i should know but i actually think they use metaplex um so they use the metaplex standards just like if you want to use mad lads on tensor that's going through metaplex you should have armani on sometime he's the absolute god engineer of solana so you can ask him about it Perfect. I love that. And and uh, so in sticking with the NFT markets here for a second, uh, on Ethereum, they're largely denominated in ETH the asset, right? And, you know, I think ETH Maxis would tell you that's because ETH is such a ultrasound money and it's, it's such, such a great asset. But uh, is the same thing true for Solana? Like, does are all the assets, uh, NFTs denominated in ETH as far, or sorry, in uh, Sol as far as prices go? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the majority of the assets are through Sol, but USCC is definitely something that's used on the chain quite a bit too. You'll you'll hear David often often put out like ETH has this triple what is it the triple point asset you know theory, 
um, which is like it's a commodity. It's also used as a store of value. Um, and then it's like a productive asset, which is like staking. And he says there's like a giant hole in Seoul right now. And I really I think the main point of this is there is a lot of inflation right now. And there's not a lot of fees, right? One of the like the key things about Solana is that there is low fees. Everything's about low latency, high throughput, and low fees right now. And to make up for that, you're going to have a lot of high volume. I think it's a little bit unfair, though, to look at like what's going on at the chain today um, and not what's going to be in the future, right? Um, it's it's more It operates more like a startup in a mindset of abundance than something of scarcity, which is ETH. And I think both of those are great, but they're coming about it in different ways. And that's why a lot of people say that Solana will likely be the consumer chain or at least support a lot of these consumer applications. I got a question. Speaking on the X NFTs, uh, so you know, I had like some of these mad lads that I got right when they came out, and now I have some soul that I was going to try to do stuff with. I was like, all right, you know what? Like, this is the first time I really want to go. I really want to go experiment in the Solana ecosystem. So I was trying to find stuff to do, and you know, I was struggling. So there's like this common trade where people are going to go stake their Solana through Jito and then borrow against it on MarginFi and you know, farm points on both of them. Um, I tried out like you know I checked out Drift Protocol, which is like a perps exchange over there, but the liquidity is pretty horrible, so it's not really like super easy to trade. Um, so I was just struggling to find you know things to do in Solana. At the end of the day, like the main the main uh, value that I heard that people are kind of on right now is go buy Bonk. It's the only thing that's liquid enough to trade in high you know and in, in high amounts. So I'm just curious, like, is there stuff to do on Solana? Will it change? And uh, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. I got, two, I got two answers for you. So the second one, which we'll get to later, is what do you do on Ethereum? Because I'm just really interested to see how much fun you're having over there. Um, but on Solana, yeah, there's quite a, quite a bit to do, but there's no, there's no argument that Ethereum definitely has more applications. Like one, it's because it launched in 2015, Solana launched in 2020, right? Like that's a big difference right there. Um, I would say that DeFi and Solana is having somewhat of a renaissance. And a big thing is a lot of these new projects that are more mature now haven't had tokens. And you don't have tokens, you don't have incentives, you don't have TVL. That's a big, a big complaint with Solana. Their TVL has been sitting around 250 million, which is tiny. It's jumped up to 550 million, I think roughly right now. But compared to Ethereum, that's like 25 billion. Um, so that's a big difference there. Now, like you've probably seen this on Twitter over the last week or so, the volume on Solana actually surpassed the TBL, um, which, which really just points to efficiency or you could point to like people are trying to game the system. It could be either way, right? Like people often like will just do trash transactions to go back and forth to get the volume up so I can see how there could be pushback there as well. Um, what I would do on Solana if I was just like talking to a normal person that's not an analyst like you, I think Drip's actually really cool. Drip is something that's like trying to make NFTs instead of about scarcity. It's like accessibility and abundance. And it's really connecting creators with people like me, consumers, right? And it's like they're putting out free art every single week right now. It's So it's connecting you with users, but also it's a way to make money. So they have like this patron model where it's like called Give Thanks if you want to pay your patron of choice. Um, DJ and Poet is one of their leading NFT artists, and he's actually from Arkansas like me, and he does all of his NFTs um, with Typewriter, which is pretty sick. Um, that's maybe not for the DJ like you. If you're a DJ like Drift, it's definitely good for the perps. Um, then Jupiter, which they do more than 50% of the volume on Solana right now, or they direct more than 50% of the volume. They're an aggregator. Uh, they, they also just launch perps, which has done more volume than um, Drifts over the last few days. And Drift is the leading perps product on Solana. Um, so I would say the majority of people actually probably start with Jupiter. And the cool thing is with Jupiter, they'll soon have CCTP. So if you are on Ethereum or you're in the Cosmos that has CCTP as well, you'll be able to bridge over really easily. Um, there's like there's a sports betting application that's on Solana. I actually can't think of the name right now. And even though it doesn't have much volume, it's like all my friends that aren't in crypto right now are sports betting. And they're all in group text that I'm in every day. It's like those are the easiest people to get on chain. So I, ho I hope to get them in soon. Jito Soul. So Jito Soul. As a liquid staking product for Jito, which is a leading MEV client in Solana, really the only MEV uh, client in Solana. I think back in September is when they announced their points program for Jito Soul. And Jito Soul jumped from 1.5 million soul stake to it's like 5.8 million today. And now 30% of that Jito Soul is actually used in DeFi throughout Solana. So I think you're right to say like a few months ago, there probably wasn't a whole lot to do. There's also Zeta Markets. I mean, there's plenty of DeFi projects, but there just wasn't a whole lot of usage in TVL. I think that's changing pretty quickly. We have the prices going up, which leads to wealth effect, which means people are going to play with these products more. So anyways, um, yeah, my question to you is what's your what do you do on Ethereum? Spend fucking fees, dude. I went on a rant on this in our analyst chat uh, the other day, but I, I was unwinding a position in, in Convex. I had Fraxy staked for a year, just experimenting. I wasn't a large position by any means, but, and because of that, when I unwound the position, you know, I paid like 50% of the yield I earned in gas fees. And Gwei was at like 30. So it wasn't, you know, today it spiked up to like 140. I was not doing it during that period of time. Like I, I waited for a mild point in time 
where gas was not too unreasonable. And I still ended up paying an enormous amount of fees. Like it's, uh, it, it is unbelievable. And, you know, Matt, you mentioned margin fine and Gito stake soul, uh, Gito soul. I've been playing around with that as well. And like, dude, it, it's like, it, it is night and day when you're, you transact, transact a bunch on Ethereum and then you go over to Solana and you just like mess around even just a little bit, like to the night and it's night and day. Like it, one feels like a blockchain and one honestly doesn't, it feels like a web page. Like, and it's not, that's not about like the, the, the app UI by any means, like just actually like setting a transaction and it taking like a second or under a second. It, it, it's nice. It's really, really nice. Yeah, I love that. I think, Bat, on your point, it's fair to say, though, there hasn't been, like, enough depth and liquidity on Solana because of that. Like, people like Marginfy, which is a lending product, they have actually had caps in how much TVL they can have um, because they've got to be able to liquidate loans. And if there's not enough volume and depth on chain, they can actually do that in a safe way. I think one thing I did, like, ignore that I should have brought up is just payments. Like, Solana, to me, in some ways, is becoming the, like, shelling point for payments, or at least I, I hope that's the case. Um, you saw Visa, I think this is like, two months ago, say that they're going to start settling USDC. Solana has a lot of payments protocols launching on top of it, or, like, applications. So, Sling is a really cool, cool one that was more or less highlighted a lot at Breakpoint. So, Sling, it looks a lot like Finmo. You can fill up your wallet with USDC just using um, Apple Pay, which is pretty cool, because, like, on and off ramps, to me, are, like, the biggest part of crypto. Um, they also have code, which is supposed to be kind of like cash. And essentially, you just send links around. Like I could right now pull up code. You could pull up code and I could send you $5 over this. Um, so payments, I just think the low latency and the high throughput of Solana and also the composability make it like a shelling point for payments. So like, Matt, you wouldn't really want to pay play with payments on chain. Like, what are you going to do? But like the average person uses payments every day. So hopefully that we get a real world use case, not just DGENs like, like you guys <laughs> that are using crypto. And that's going to be the base for Solana. Yeah, I think that those are all fair points. Like today, really, the main uses that I see people using Ethereum and its L2s for are kind of perps and derivatives, a little bit friend tech and whatever you want to call that kind of, uh, you know, social fi. You could argue gaming and then, of course, more than anything, like speculative gambling on shit coins. So like while Solana doesn't really, you know, have as much ability to, for those actions yet, I guess you could totally argue and probably completely fairly that that's not going to be what scales this to a billion users. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day that Solana doesn't have these kind of crappy use cases. And also, I think it's interesting to think about like all those different points you were talking about, like margin five points and Gito points. When those airdrops do come out, that's like a shit ton of liquidity that just automatically gets injected into the Solana ecosystem. You know, Gito could come out at a billion dollar FDV potentially. I mean, whatever, I don't want to speculate on that, but at a very high FDV. And that's just brand new TVL in the Solana that didn't exist the day before. Yeah, I agree. I think these points are huge. Like. I know, I know I'm rambling. This is my first time not to be a host of a podcast. Love to, love to be the guest. Um, but Tensor is one of the, the leading like NFT protocols on Solana. And you can see how powerful these points and obviously tokens will be. Back in February this year, they had 2% of the market share. And then Blur happened on Ethereum and they did that point system, which absolutely skyrocketed for a bit, right? And then right after that, Tensor came out and they had points as well. It wasn't truly called points. It was like loot boxes. And they went from 2% market share to 20% and the 20% to 60%. And they're still sitting at 52. So it just kind of shows you like the power of these points and incentives and what it can do. Yeah. One thing that I'd love to see, which I think you're going to start seeing too, and especially if it sounds like that was a huge theme at Breakpoint is like people are building things, right? And you still, you've seen a lot of that experimentation occur on ETH and ETH L2s. Um, like for example, you know, Athena launching a stable coin, like that's, that's super interesting. I think you're going to see that spread and, and those ideas um, not only like just get mapped over to Solana, but get iterated on because you can do more on this type of chain. It doesn't have fee barriers and that is low latency and that is high throughput. So there's like a different type of app you can build. Um, but it, it's, it is going to be interesting once we start seeing that come online, right? Like first you have to come up with the idea, then you have to get funded, then you have to actually build it, then you have to deploy it. So like there is this huge um, like time gap that you have to wait through it once the idea is first, you know, ideated. Um, but like using Athena as an example, you know, they use stake ETH and then run a Delta neutral hedging position on that. Uh, they use stake ETH as a collateral to create this stable coin, right? And do you think that like Soul intentionally focus on focusing on not being money has any impact on the DeFi ecosystem as a whole? It's a good question. Um, I mean, in some ways, I wouldn't say, I don't know if Soul isn't money. I mean, if you talk to Anatoly, he would definitely say the point of Soul is not, it's not for it to be money. It's like civil resistance. Soul's often also used in a few other things. Like over this last year, people probably knew in 2022 that Solana had some network issues, right? A few outages. But they implemented something called quick 
which is really just network stability, and also stake weighted QoS, which means quality of service. And so now how it works, imagine I'm a validator and I have 1% of the stake. That gives me right to 1% of a block. So I can have 1% of the transactions go into that block. Now that doesn't really matter unless the block's full because otherwise I could just put in a transaction anyways. But in the future, when there's more transactions on chain, that's going to give even more of like a supply sink for Solana, for Sol. Because if you're one of the validators that has a high amount of stake, you actually have a right to that block, which kind of gets to the point, like can validators survive on inflation alone? The point is they won't. They don't have to. This right here will be a revenue stream for them. The more stake that they have, because a lot of RPCs, for example, don't have their own stake, they would then pay these validators that have a large amount of soul to be able to get their transactions in and also get their transactions in on time and like in a fast way. Soul is definitely more about abundance, less on scarcity. I, I think the ETH meme is great. I don't know. I also just think that the more people that use Solana, more more apps that are built on top you have to have soul and even if you don't have to have soul because there is account abstraction already on solana it's going to be soul used to pay these fees and i think for something to be money for the most part you have to have a lot of people to hold it and you're not going to be on the eth l1 holding eth for the most part if you're a and norby user it's just too expensive but i think eth will continue to be money in crypto for sure i think that's going to be hard to kind of like break that positioning i think they've won that in some ways but i also think soul will have aspects of money as well that whole money in this conversation is pretty interesting. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know what is money and what is not. But if I use it to buy things and crypto, then I guess it's money. Do you think uh, the fate of Solana, I guess, I guess sold token price, let's say that, and maybe like the flourishing of its ecosystem over the next six months is largely dependent on how these points programs actually shape out? Because like we just saw the Prisma uh, points program kind of play out and people got absolutely screwed. And Obviously, this gets kind of complained about a lot because the whole points programs, like you don't actually know what you're getting. I know one guy on our team like farmed points for a while and could only like cash in for a t-shirt or something. So hopefully that's not what the subpoints a lot of projects are going to do over there. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts there. Yeah, that's another good question. I, I think points are interesting in one way in that it allows the protocol and the developers of these economics to actually put something out there into the world and see how everybody responds without actually committing to having a token. So not only do you have regulatory issues, but you also just have like some people dropped all their tokens in one go, like they blew their load. Like, do you really want to do that up front? Or like, can you play around with points? The other thing is, like you said, it really can mislead people as well. So I don't know. I, I think there's pros and cons of points. I do think like these token drops and how Jupiter does with theirs. So they have announced they're going to do a token drop. They're actually like talking with the community and so forth to see how they want to do it. So they haven't announced how that drop's going to happen. It is good for these projects now. I think that they already saw the high FTVs happen in Solana like before FTX and how badly that went. And then also some of the airdrops have happened in Ethereum. So you can learn like what is the good way to do that? And then you could compare that to even like Solana doesn't have some of the same tech debt as Ethereum because they saw Ethereum for a few years. I think the bigger thing for Solana in the long term, at least, will just be like Fire Dancer is a big one. We don't have to go into that yet. But, you know, Ethereum had EIP 1559 and that's what the whole community kind of got around. And same with like Proof of Stake. And the equivalent in some ways is Fire Dancer, which essentially is just a new client that's supposed to be like 10 times more performant for Solana. And it's one of those things like pre-token is sometimes better than having a token. Pre-revenue is better than having revenue. Um, because if Fire Dancer just continued to get delayed, for example, that could be a big problem. Also, if you're introducing a new client that's written an esoteric code base, that maybe then starts the fragility of the network over because it's not hardened, right? Like if you release Fire Dancer, it could have a bug in it, right? And if everybody switches over to it, that's an issue. So I think Fire Dancer right now is probably the biggest thing for Solana on like a two-year timeline because as of now, Fire Dancer is supposed to go live on Testnet in the second half of 2024. If that gets delayed by like two years, like Ethereum with POS for like five years, whatever it was, that's not going to be good. Comparing uh, Fire Dancer to 1559 might be like a bit a bit of a reach, I think. 1559 made Ethereum go from more or less unusable for a general user to something that, you know, I don't, I don't know if people here remember, but you could wait 10, 20, 30 minutes <clears throat> for a transaction to go through and, and you had no idea what gas fee you should set. So 1559 really did make Ethereum, like was zero to one moment for Ethereum. But I see what you're saying as far as Fire Dancer will make Solana a lot better. And, and I'm excited to see that. I agree. My one like pushback, even though this is not what the Solana community will choose to do, I don't think, is like all the numbers that you see with Fire Dancer run on today's commodity hardware, like what Solana validators are running. So technically, if it's 10 times more performant, you could really just lower the resource requirements for a Solana validator, and that would make it more approachable and accessible and democratized according to everyone in Ethereum. Um, are they going to do that? I don't think so. Instead, it's going to be like people switch to Fire Dancer and you'll have 10 times faster speed and throughput. And then it's like, what can we support with this? But if they really wanted to, to say like, okay, we can actually just make our validator requirement lower, 
then similar to you said, EIP 1559 made Ethereum more usable for the average user. Well, this would make Solana more usable for the average validator or node operator. I got another question for you here. What do you think about people's claim that the supply overhang from the FTX estate and Alameda estate is just too much to overcome because there's been 24 million souls sent to centralized exchanges? Do you think that's a legitimate headwind or are you not concerned? It's a meme. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's a short-term issue for sure. Solana's whole thing used to be like we're chewing glass, right? People respected that term and that it meant that if you're a developer on Solana, you're like working through all this hard code base and there's no real frameworks, et cetera, that were built out. But then they actually got like kicked in the teeth when the FTX imploded. And so they were 100% chewing glass. Um, but I think the community has come out stronger than that. And like now that you just have these FTX cells, to me in the short term, for sure, it's going to be some pressure on the price. But it's a really good thing. I heard Chris Berniski talking about back before FTX imploded that he didn't want to get in the Solana ecosystem purely because it, he saw it as like a VC chain. But after FTX and this estate sale, like that narrative, it's already kind of gone away. But that narrative will definitely go away because this is any, if anything is taking that VC or trader stake and is going to distribute it to more people. Now, who knows? Maybe it goes to one more VC. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case. So I actually think in some ways, long term, this is really positive for the network because if Solana was always the VC chain, like I wouldn't care about it. And I don't think a lot of other people would. What's up, everyone? As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize Hexens, the premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review of the new Polygon ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, New Bank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis in cybersecurity consulting. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. There has been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say that your team has a lot on the line. Don't skip out, take your security seriously, and choose Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and you can reach out to Hexens at hexens.io or find them on on the ground at DevConnect. Without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. I don't want to name names here, but I have a I have a real complaint about Solana. Let's Protocol go. documentation is so bad. One thing that Ethereum projects have like it took a while, but they figured it out now. Uh, what they got docs are good in Ethland. Let me tell you that. Like, well, you, you can open a tab and there's a contract list of every relevant contract for this protocol. That's beautiful. And that definitely took a while to get to. Um, and there's one thing I heard from people that were at Breakpoint. So let me know if you disagree with this. But it sounds like a lot of the developer community of these new protocols I was mentioning earlier is people that have like really never interacted with ETH or Bitcoin before. Like this is like a new set of a new wave of developers coming in. And so that concerns me about dot quality, because if you're used to digging around DeFi applications on Ethereum or the L2s and, and, and so forth, then you know the pains of like having good docs and having bad docs. And this makes a world of difference, especially for people that are trying to learn about a protocol. So that is a legitimate complaint that I have is some major protocols in Solana have a really, really pitiful docs, to be honest. Very, very good and like legit complaint. I think that's probably gotten a little bit better over the last year. Armani, for example, he's been huge on top of this, like trying to establish frameworks and documentation. But now you've even seen Mert from Helios, who's my co-host on Lightspeed. Like he's really big behind this. I know you've read like some of the blogs from the Helios website. They do a great job. Yeah. Yeah. But we definitely need like more researchers in the space that are writing this out and also developers just for the documentation. Like John Charb came on our show. He's like, when I came to crypto, there was no way I wasn't going to Ethereum because I'm intellectual curious and where could I actually read stuff and learn that was Ethereum like Solana didn't have that I'm like really going like bullish Solana on this episode I don't have like only good feelings towards Solana to be fair but I would say that in some ways though this is actually another positive sign for Solana the fact that you have so many developers in the ecosystem and also users without this documentation is similar to like hey people are using crypto today even though it's like kind of shitty to use and it's really hard to have a wallet but that's actually really bullish anytime you see a product that's kind of shit but people are using it anyways it's usually a really good sign because those things will be fixed like Anatoly would say, this is an engineering problem. I mean, this is a documentation problem, obviously, that you're talking about. It's a little bit different. But in some ways, I would say that's actually extremely bullish. And the big thing with, with Solana to me, the docu documentation might be shit. But if you're an Ethereum developer, it's like, where are you going to build? Do you build on ETH L1 today? Do you build on the rollups? Like, this process is kind of shit, right? Like, okay, well, I can build on Arbitrum. I can build on ZK Sync. Like, I don't know where I'm going to do it. Are they even ready? Like, all the bridges have multi-sigs and they're updatable. Are my users going to know where to go? Like, that experience isn't very good. And Solana's documentation might be bad, but, like, their sole focus is giving, like, a bigger and easier design space for 
app application developers come on top and build. And that's why you need low latency. That's why you need high speed. That's why like token 22, which is a new token program that's coming out. It's going to make things easier for developers. I think their whole thing is like, we don't know what application is going to be built in crypto, but let's make it as easy as possible. And Ethereum is going to get there, but their main focus right now is like, we just need to learn how to scale. So like if you're looking at those two ecosystems, which one is more likely to actually bring in the developer that's going to have that great app idea? It, to me, like that's Solana. I love it. I love it. All right, we've been uh, we've been putting you in the hot seat, so let's flip it here. Uh, we appreciate real it. quick, real quick. I got yeah, one more. Right, stay stay, in, stay in the hot seat, then. Stay <laughs> in the hot seat. He's just so bold up on this, and I'm just looking at DeFi Llama. 24 hour purpose volume is 17 million, which is a joke. Uh, stable coin volume before the last month and a half run up was the exact same that it is today. And if you switch TVL to sold terms, it's down only from 17 million to below 10 million today. Like to me, that doesn't signal anyone else is using the chain now that wasn't using it two months ago before the price run up. Like what, what do you think of that? Like to me, it seems like no one's using it. I agree. I mean, the numbers on Solana are still pretty bad, but even uh, Phantom tweeted out, I think today that over the last two weeks, they've had a hundred thousand new wallets sign up. So I don't know where they're going. Maybe they don't know what to do. So I think this is a big thing in Ethereum as well. Your first time to get a crypto wallet, like what do you do with it? You don't really know. So one thing they're trying to do that Phantom did is they integrated with Drip where now when you come in, it almost has like a guide, like get your first drip in FTE. So I think like that's something they're trying to solve. But let's be honest, six months ago, no one was talking about Solana except people that are native to the ecosystem. Everyone's like, is it dead? Like this is December. That's changed pretty quickly. I, I know I'm just kind of going on a tangent from your question, Sam, but I think I kind of have to because, okay, to skip to it, like Solana to me is net new. They're net new in that they have to go after new applications and new developers and new users. And like, why is that? And that's because there weren't really that many there. Like there's, there, obviously there's a joke that there's 75 developers in Solana. That's not true. There's actually a lot, but like, there's not much TVL. There's not a ton of usage. Whereas Ethereum and you're an L2, they're mostly going after Ethereum users because they're like, we already have this giant basket of users. We're just going to make that app that they're using faster. We're going to put it on L2. We're actually just going to migrate our protocol to an L2. Solana can't do that because they don't have the TVL sitting there and they don't have the users. So if anything, they're having to go after net new applications and net new users. If you want crypto to be what it is today and you're happy with that, like, let's just use the applications we have today. That'll be great. And like, sure, Ethereum's doing it right. Um, if you think that crypto can do more than just having like our little group of people on our telegram, then that's something that Solana is trying to do. So to be fair, yeah, right now, Solana is not there with the numbers, but I would say that they actually have hardened DeFi protocols that stuck around after FTX, which is re really cool to see. Like if I was them, I would have probably left this developer. Um, but you have some truly genius people working in the space. That's what I like about crypto in, in general is you have so many smart people in the space. I would have left otherwise. Um, you have that. You have people like Rune coming out with MakerDAO talking about the SVM, right? I don't think he actually understands SVM that much. I actually heard him talking about it. He doesn't. But <laughs> he thinks that it has the lowest amount of friction. And for somebody like Maker, they need a lot of like, low friction if they're going to do these micropayments. And then you had Visa coming out on Solana. Like You actually have these announcements. But I think the thing you can argue about is that Solana has good tech. Like The S SVM is good tech. Isolated fee markets, you're going to need that on L2s. Parallel execution, probably going to need that too. And so like just the, the tech is there. You obviously have the attention. The attention is there. We're talking about it right now. And you see it on Solana. You now have the price. I mean, the price went down to $8 from like 250 or whatever it was. Right now, it's like from the last month, it's from 20 to 63. It's like sitting at 57 today. So the price is there. You have the attention. You have the tech. Now you just need the users. And to me, like all of crypto needs users, but at least they have everything else. So they're, they're ready for that next step. And hopefully we have another cycle in crypto. Yeah, that's why I'm super excited about the next six months as again, because you have that time lag of like creating these new protocols. And I think we're I, I feels like we're getting it there. So um, I, I, this last segment has really made us sound like the, the other three of us really sound like ETH maxis, which is really not true, ironically. But uh, I was a bit for show just for the, the sake of, you know, hashing out some of these really interesting topics about Solana, um, because I think that like there's a lot of reason to talk about these, I, I know, especially when price starts going up. Twitter just gets almost unbearable, to be honest, and with all the amount of noise going on. So it was fun to kind of just jam on a couple of these ideas with you. But uh, like I said, we had you in the hot seat for the last 30 minutes. So let's let's flip the uh, flip the roles here and I'll give you the floor to put someone in the hot seat or the cool throne, whichever one you prefer today. OK, I already talked about Jupiter some because they were going to be my cool throne. So I will do a hot seat to continue on this Ethereum theme. And I'm also a big fan of Ethereum, by the way, like you said with Dan, but I have to I'm Team Solana right now. So. I think that Ethereum L2 frameworks are highly overrated and there's going to be a massive competition, even though right now everyone's like Kumbaya. So you have like a lot of podcasts where like Arbitrum and Optimism will go on at the same time. Like that's really great. And it's also great to have a meme that they're like working together and this is going to be amazing. 
But yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. It's for a few reasons. I think the reason that you had these rollups and especially the frameworks. So you have like Arbitrum 1, but then you have Arbitrum Orbit. So when I'm talking about frameworks. I'm talking about like Arbitrum Orbit. I'm talking about um, hyperchains. And I'm talking about like Optimism Superchain. I think those all came out of the result that just like a year ago, we didn't have isolated feed markets and parallel execution wasn't really a thing or wasn't really heard of by people in the Ethereum community. People in the Ethereum community knew about it, but they didn't really acknowledge it. And I think like right now you're seeing like Eclipse with the SVM come over to Ethereum. They're basically saying we used to think we're going to need a framework. We're going to have app chains use Eclipse, but they're like, people don't really need this or most applications don't need this. We're actually hoping to just have Eclipse, the one roll up that everyone's going to be on top of. I also think that like these L2 tokens through these frameworks aren't going to do very well. And the reason for that is the more competition that you have, which is assuming that these frameworks all, you know, live a great life together and don't have great competition, is that it's going to commoditize them. And if you're Ethereum, that's great. Like ETH is going to be used throughout these ecosystems. So ETH as an asset is going to do wonderful. But it's this whole concept of like commoditize your complement, which is a really dumb like example. But if you're a hot dog, you're not competing with hamburgers. You're competing with the bun for the hot dog. You want that, that bun to be as cheap as possible. So if they only have $10 in their pocket, they'll spend it all on the dog. No one cares about, you know, I feel no like I'm back in the econ class with learning so, about and, complementary and, things. And that's that to me is what's going to happen. If there's true competition, you don't have purchasing powers in L2. Now, if you have what I think is going to happen and you have these power law outcomes and instead you have, I don't know, three rollups that have 90% plus the value and then you have app chains like DYDX, et cetera, like that's still going to exist, then you do have some purchasing power. And Ethereum does have to be able to offer data availability and so forth at like a reasonable cost or everyone will go to Celestio or they'll launch their own chain. So anyways... My hot seat is L2 frameworks. I don't know who wants to defend them. I'll argue your point of that, you know, parallel execution makes L2s dumb because at the end of the day, sharding like Ethereum's original scaling roadmap was pretty similar to parallel execution as far as, you know, you have different shards that are in parallel executing different transactions. And the reason that, you know, Ethereum developers decided to go a different route was because it it forfeited composability or synchronous composability between, you know, different shards. And the problem there was a lot of crypto wants to touch the same state. So, you know, having a transaction that touches Aave and Uniswap at the same time um, is not possible when those are when the Aave is on one shard and Uniswap's on the other shard. And I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken, I'm not, you know, a Solana expert, but I'm pretty sure the same is true with synchronous with the with the uh, parallel execution in Solana, meaning that you can't parallel in parallel execute two transactions that touch the same state on Solana. So, like, you know, I don't I think that Ethereum developers made a conscious decision to go a different route as far as scaling through rollups instead of scaling through a mechanism that you know could be could be conflated with parallel execution so i'm not sure that that's a completely fair argument um additionally i think that today the rollups we see are 100 percent competing right like i do think that we're in this very competitive market the zk rollups haven't really even come to come to fruition yet so i think that this kind of like biz dev grant program knife fight is only going to heat up more and more and you brought up a good point maybe five or six minutes ago about how if you're a developer looking to build you know, a product in the EVM, how do you even choose where to go? And that's the answer is who's going to give you the most money, which biz dev program, which, you know, which biz dev team or grants program is going to throw you the most money to come build there. But to some extent, that might actually give these Ethereum ecosystems a leg up in being able to attract developers compared to Solana, where, you know, at the end, like if you want to code in Rust, even you, you're going to be able to do that on Arbitrum soon with Stylus. Um, so I don't know. I think that you know, we see a more competitive, we see a more competitive eco, like landscape of trying to get app developers to come build there, especially in a bull market when these treasuries become worth even more money. And I feel like these, you know, Ethereum L2s are going to have a leg up on Solana. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely really excited about the idea of like one, one single shard, baby. I mean, I, I love isolated sea markets. I think they're genius. Parallel execution is how the world works and there's no reason blockchain shouldn't be on the same wavelength there. And Matt, to your point, um, you don't lose atomicity with parallelization, but like if there were, you just have to literally execute transactions that touch the same state. They can still happen within the same block, but they just, and they can still be conditional, right? You can only execute if a certain, a certain other need, um, but they're, they just can't, they just have to be, uh, linear ex literally executed within the same thread. So it's still, you still get atomicity and atomic transactions. It's just uh, those particular transactions need to be on the same thread in a certain order. Um, and so I, that's why I, I'm glad you mentioned Eclipse, Garrett, just because that, like that, that's going to be the proof case here. Like, right today, the users today are on Ethereum mainnet for whatever reason. And putting a parallel execution environment on top of that is really, really exciting, especially when you pair it with Celestia DA. Like it should be cheap still, assuming you know Celestia lives up to the hype and provides cheap DA. 
And then you have the transaction throughput from the SVM and you have the settlement in liquidity uh, from Ethereum mainnet. So uh, we've talked about it a lot, so I don't want to like keep harping on it on this podcast, but Eclipse is, is going to be a really, really exciting venture because you'd have to imagine that if you're building an app on Solana today, like you've at least had the conversation of, hey, do we, you know, do we deploy on Eclipse? Like, does that make sense for us? Yeah, I would just echo Matt's points, honestly. Like, I think for as long as L2s can launch at $10 billion FTVs and use those tokens to incentivize behavior on your chain, you're going to retain the users, you're going to retain the liquidity, and it doesn't matter what, what someone else does because, unfortunately, crypto is a game of incentives today. And until we get that killer consumer app that you're hoping lands on Solana, I don't really think it matters. Altus will win for the time being. Do you think that's going to happen on the main Optimism? I don't know if it's Optimism 1, then you have Arbitrum 1, or do you think this is actually going to be the framework where you have like base obviously building out? There is no other base in crypto. Like they had 100 million users. That's why they have base. But do you think other projects are going to do that? Because in some ways, I feel like these frameworks were developed because there weren't isolated fee markets. And you see, I hear people talk a lot about like, well, if you're a project, you want to be able to accrue your own MEV, right, to your token. And I get that. And on a monolithic layer or an integrated layer, that is much harder. But even with Solana's isolated fee markets and that separation of state and the programs, they are already working on ways that you can actually, because you have those like local fee markets to your specific state and app, they're working on ways where you can actually accrue that revenue to your app itself. So I think you lose that argument. And also there's no more. We need to have our own app chain because if there's an NFT mint, it's going to clog our lending protocol. Like that's not a thing. So like why, why else are there, there are these frameworks? When you mean frameworks, what exactly do you mean? Yeah, maybe I have the, the wrong word. It'd be like, Optimism super chain. I think the idea behind these like frameworks slash alliances between like different L2 ecosystems with their own token is honestly trying to get a flywheel slash network effects going. So that way devs come build on your stack. Users are there. Capital comes there. People are building out solutions to really hard problems like interop and L2s. So I, I think that's the main reason why they're going for these like L2s or, you know, forks of your own code base slash ecosystem of L3s. I think they just want to get enough developers and users kind of stuck there to where like everyone has to try and solve the hard problems that haven't been solved yet. I think it depends on the role of ecosystem. So like, like Sam was alluding to with Optimism or ZK Sync, it's all open source. Anyone can go fork the stack. So like you, all you're really getting is soft network effects where you know, developers coming and building better tooling is going to benefit your ecosystem and benefit future developers and maybe bring more users in. But for something like Arbitrum, it's completely different. Uh, I think, I, actually, I'm not sure about StarkNet, but for Arbitrum, <clears throat> you know, in order to build in, on the Arbitrum stack and to build an Orbit chain, you actually have to use a sequencer on Arbitrum and drive revenue there. Or, well, at the end of the day, your transaction has to be included in the general message inbox on Arbitrum. So basically use their sequencer. So it's like actually potentially driving value to the ARB token when you expand this ecosystem. So actually, unfortunately, like it seems that kind of optimism is eating Arbitrum's lunch as far as attracting developers, because why, like, like you're alluding to, why would you ever want to, you know, give up that, that revenue, that ability to order transactions that you see in Solana and that you see in optimism, if you're going to go build an app chain over there. But I think it's in, it's all evolving actually. Like there's an interesting, you know, avalanche improvement community proposal right now. Um, that I think we'll probably bring up later. That's kind of relevant in this conversation as well. I mean, to me, this kind of just goes back at the idea of like, you know, why do we need L2s is we're just building extended general purpose blockchains, right? Like they're not app specific, like it's, and that's like a whole other argument, but like, why do we need these general purpose L2s? It's because we can't do everything we want to do on ETH L1. And so I don't know, I, I Garrett, I tend to agree with you. Like sometimes when you start getting into the nitty gritty of the stuff, I, like it, I just get this like disgust honestly like like what, what what are we doing when we have the uh, opportunity to build out on these other chains that don't necessarily need this and like i'm not saying there's not problems there right there's still very hard problems that need to be solved but uh if you if you wanted to just build a like if you wanted a uh you know global state machine then like why are we going to l2s and having to do this thing like creating all these new sets of problems just to solve the same problems yeah it's that conflation of modular and app specific because when everyone was like modular becomes the buzzword, it's like, oh, everybody's going to have a modular blockchain, which then people were like an app chain. But those aren't the same thing. And that's what you see with Eclipse. It's modular, but it's not an app chain. It's just one L2. And I think that's where things have changed a little bit. And I think it's interesting, too, that a longer bear market actually, I think, benefits Ethereum. Because right now there's so many complications on, to me, at least on Ethereum's roadmap and like shared sequencers and these 
centralized contracts that we have, or I should say with multi-sigs that are on there, just like L2s have training wheels on right now, right? Like they're not completely ready to scale. You don't really have the law of chains on optimism figured out. All this interoperability is not solved yet. And like the end, like, yeah, it'll probably be solved. But similar to the Vitalik's end game that I think he wrote in December 2022, maybe he talked about like the end of the day, Solana and Ethereum are going to be pretty similar in the sense that you're going to have big beefy builders. And then like, hopefully users at the end can just verify the chain, right? Like they're going to have light resources to be able to verify the chain. Solana can't do that yet. Right. They, but they do have the scale today. Ethereum is getting close to having light clients. I don't think that's really a thing, but obviously the node requirements are pretty low, uh, but it doesn't have scale yet. So to me, like if crypto actually took off in like the next year, Solana is there to be able to support that. Whereas I think Ethereum would struggle quite a bit. I had a tweet on this the other day. If you had a bull market today, like the fees on L2s would skyrocket to some extent. They're going to be much lower than Ethereum L1, but they will skyrocket to some extent. Then because of that, maybe if Eclipse is actually ready to go, you'll have some users go to Eclipse. If you go to Eclipse, you can use the Solana native wallet or you can use MetaMask because they have MetaMask snaps. And then if you download a Solana native wallet, hopefully maybe you'll start to check out Solana itself because you see that's where the majority of the DeFi applications are and the liquidity. If today L2s aren't ready to actually scale, Solana is, but like the longer that Ethereum has to figure out the roadmap and to figure out this interoperability, great. Mert talks about, he's a mathematics guy. He's way more technical than me, but he says, Ethereum and Solana have the same end game. Ethereum has a lot more conditionals to get to that end game. Meaning like each conditional is some factor that has to work out. And if that probability is lower than 99%, you keep multiplying them over and over and over. It's like, this has to work. This has to work. This has to work. You eventually get to like zero, right? Whereas Solana is like, it's got not a complicated future roadmap. Um, it's not easy, but it's not as complicated because you're that one global state, right? So I think that's kind of the bull case for Solana. My only pushback to that on the L2 fee side is like, how price sensitive is the average user to a transaction? Like, when do you start caring? Like, is it 50 cents? Is it a dollar? Is it $3? Is it $50? Like, where where's that line? And if you look at L2 transaction fees today, you know, they're, they're all basically sub 50 cents. Uh, I'm quickly pulling something up here. Yeah, so like, uh, you know, CK Sync's at about 16 cents, Optimism 8, Arbitrum 19, and Base about 5 cents. That was uh, looking at last month's data. And, uh, you know, like if those doubled, do you lose any transaction activity? Like I tend to think no. Like I don't, like me personally as a user, if it's under a dollar, like to me, that's just, I'm just rounding that thing down to zero. But like the, I am not like an MEV bot. I am not. Like there's definitely some uh, applications on Solana that rely on like seriously high transaction counts. Um, and so that's like, I could see how there's different apps that have those very specific use cases, but on L2s today, those don't really exist in the same capacity at least. And so like, I just don't think users are that price sensitive, to be honest. I, like, I think anything under, anything ballpark a dollar is like game on. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that. I'll, um, I have to run here in a minute, but I'll give you my last little rant on that piece because that's the best thing about Ethereum right now today is that you do have price insensitive users. I mean, I do think, let's just act like T-Pen, which is kind of an exciting narrative that's in Solana. If that is something that could help start the next bull market, that can't be happening on L2s that don't have isolated fee markets because those those payments are so small, they're micropayments that any spike in fees is just not going to work. So like that is a use case that wouldn't work. Now, like people betting on assets going up, which is really like the main liquidity in crypto right now and where most of the usage comes from, I think you're right. Ethereum is mostly insensitive. And there's this whole like comparison that's come out, like Solana is similar to Apple and then it's vertically integrated and that it's less complicated for developers to build on top of. And then you have Android, that's something that's more modular and like developers can play around with. And that's like the EVM. I agree, like that's a cool analogy, but where it falls apart is that Apple is the one with price and sensitive users, which is really what Ethereum has, right? Like you want to have Apple's users to, to buy your products. You want to market to those users because they're LTV. They spend so much more money than the average customer. And that's what's happening with Ethereum customers today. Solana doesn't have that. The people on Solana, they say Solana's for the poor. I hate that meme, but that's what they say, right? The more interesting thing in the future is maybe similar, and this goes into the whole inflation debate. Like you're going to have a lot of revenue there, probably come through advertising. Like you're going to have these applications that come on board and they just use Solana as a back end for payments, et cetera. And maybe some of that like advertising fee somehow gets paid to these people running nodes and validators because I, yeah, you may never have these validators that can be profitable alone from just inflation, for example. I don't know, but that's definitely a use case, but you could have obviously like Circle, they have a business built on top. You could also have people that are smaller that are consumer applications and they either have subscription fees or they have advertising and that's how they profit. I'm kind of making this all up, but that's how I actually think something could play out because that's how it's worked in consumer today and consumer applications. Advertising market's absolutely huge, right? And that, that doesn't exist in crypto today. But um, anyways, guys, I've got I've to run. So thank you for putting up with my rant. This is, this is a lot of fun. Next time I'll come on and be a little bit more participatory and friendly. No, no, we love it. I appreciate you uh, battling the uh, the 
the crap we were throwing at you. That was fun, man. That was fun. Well, I'll have you back on for sure, but uh, thanks a ton, Garrett. Uh, and for the listeners, we'll stick around because we are going through some governance updates next. Yes. And uh, follow Lightspeed. Links in the show notes. <laughs> Gotta See get Garrett. the plug in. Yeah, we love it. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Peace, Garrett. All right, Zero X Research listeners, we're calling on you to join us for the premier institutional crypto conference in Europe's crypto capital, London, this March 2024. You're going to get to hear exclusive insights from industry trailblazers on things like leveraging DeFi protocols for institutional yield, tokenizing real world assets with instant settlement, navigating the evolving global regulatory landscape, integrating digital assets into banking and payments, or crafting institutional investment mandates with digital assets as the key focus. We'll also be featuring some big keynote speakers, including Melvin Dang, the CEO at QCP Capital, Mark Yusko, the CEO and managing partner of Morgan Creek Capital, and Stani Kluchin, the founder and CEO of Ave Companies. This is not an event you're going to want to miss. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using promo code 0x20 to save 20% on your tickets. See you in London, the land of tasty pastries, and be sure to hit up Dan and I for a beer. I guess let's just, we can just go into the governance update that I like briefly mentioned two seconds ago about Avalanche, um, which is ACP 13, Avalanche Community Proposal 13. Um, it's kind of a big deal. It's in GitHub. It's, you know, nothing's implemented yet. It's kind of in a discussion type phase. But the idea of ACP 13 is to make, to remove the need to be a validator on Avalanche primary network in order to validate subnet. So today, if you want to be a subnet validator, which is Avalanche's version of app chains, you have to also already be a validator on Avalanche primary network or C chain. Um, today, I think, you know, November 13th, that's about $35,000. It's 2000 AVAX. But at the peak of the bull market, that was like 200 grand. So if you wanted to be a, a validator on a subnet, you needed a $200,000 position in AVAX. That drove really, really, in my opinion, a really good fundamental value proposition to AVAX. You know, basically, you don't actually need fees. You don't actually need, you know, a lot of the things we're talking about with Solana and Ethereum to be sustainable. All you need is an appetite for subnets. ACP 13 removes this need and removes this value proposition in favor of a, a little bit of an altered one. So basically, now anyone can go be a validator on a subnet. There is no need to be a validator on Avalanche if ACP 13 gets implemented. However, depending on the, the amount of usage that that subnet gets, it'll have to pay an ongoing fee to Avalanche, to Avalanche validators. So, you know, it completely fundamentally changes Avalanche's value proposition and no one is talking about it. So that's, I think that's pretty cool from my perspective. There's also another one, ACP 13, which is Avalanche warp messaging which would give subnets and Avalanche primary network the ability to uh, communicate with each other just in a very similar way to IBC. Also, like sleeper fact is that AWM and IBC could one day actually be interoperable with each other and communication standards that work together. So there's actually a lot of cool stuff going on in Avalanche land. Um, you know, technically, I'm the expert in Avalanche for Blockworks Research and I cover it. And I got to say, over the last year, there hasn't been a whole lot for me to like really to really bite into and get interested in. And it seems that that's changing. Uh, so maybe all L1 narrative is back. But I was wondering, what, what do you guys think about ACP 13? Yeah, it's, it's definitely really cool because the there's a couple of different ways it's interesting, right? So one is the from the actual, just purely from the subnet perspective and like launching your version of an app chain on a subnet. And the other one is Avalanche tokenomics, as you mentioned. So the tokenomics one is interesting, right? Because there is a limited number, of, like there's a limited total supply of AVAX, which is which is already pretty interesting for a proof of stake token. Like the Matic token did the same thing. Um, now that they're migrating to their own little, uh, now they're migrating to POL to kind of facilitate the staking needs of the future of the Polygon world. They actually re they removed the hard cap and are in introducing long term inflation uh, because you need to kind of do that into perpetuity. So it's kind of interesting that Avalanche is taking a different route there to begin with. Um, but then if we look at fees, all fee revenue on chain goes to the validators, like nothing, uh, there's, there is a base fee, but that's not like burned as it is in Ethereum that is, that is also passed back through to the validators. Uh, so if you're like looking for value accrual to the token, it doesn't really exist in the same sense it does, uh, for some of the other blockchains you may, may know like Ethereum. And so it, you already have to start thinking from a different lens when it comes to AVAX tokenomics and value accrual and the difference that they're changing here it makes I mean, it makes sense, right? Like let's say I wanted to launch my own app chain, like needing that massive barrier to entry is, is a deterrent. Uh, but at the same time, it's not necessarily cheap to go spin up an app chain in a different landscape. There's cool things like conduit now that are kind of like really simplifying this and, you know, these other role as a service providers. Uh, but if you're going to go like spin up a cosmos chain, you know, you have to have your own in token, have your own token, uh, take a portion of your, uh, supply and kind of like, uh, 
bootstrap a validator set. We were just talking with Greg Asuri from Akash because uh, Akash went up a Cosmos chain to uh, operate their their network. And he was like, yeah, the, the ongoing inflation cost is is a drag. And it's something we think very heavily about. And, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he was basically saying, uh, my interpretation of that was, you know, if we were going to go do this again, like we would actually really consider not building an app, uh, a Cosmos chain because like we don't necessarily want our own token to have to bootstrap this validator set. Uh, so if you look at subnets, you know, today each subnet uh, with validators has about between two and 10 validators today. So they're definitely smaller val validator sets by design. Uh, it's kind of been like they seem to be playing into this uh, institutional angle and like, hey, like, you know, we really need these greenlit services where, you know, you know who's interacting with their chain. I'm a little more on that KYC side of things. Um, that's kind of like the direction it appears they've been going in. And it kind of makes a lot of sense to continue building this direction, right? Like that group cohort of people probably doesn't want to have to take a 2000 token position in AVAX. Uh, so there's another way for them to do that and pay a little bit more on the variable cost side, right? So it sounds to me like the new model they're they're using um, kind of removes the fixed cost and introduces the variable cost. So like, hey, if you're using a ton of our resources, we're going to charge you more kind of thing. So maybe it's a good way to kind of bootstrap some experimentation. Um, and it's something that they, you know, that this probably makes a lot of sense for them to focus on right now. Yeah, I think the variable cost is really interesting thing to think about because if you look at like you know building on top of ethereum if you want to go build a roll up on top of ethereum you don't need to be any you don't need an ethereum validator so you know that's just not a thing but what you do what you do need is to pay an ongoing fee back to ethereum dependent on the usage that you're you know that you're that your roll-up's getting because if you have a lot of usage you're going to pay a higher data availability cost back to layer one um and settlement costs as well so like it's basically taking that ethereum and ethereum scaling model and putting it onto avalanche and it's something I haven't thought a lot about, but you know, when we were talking about Arbitrum a second ago and how Optimism is kind of eating their lunch a little bit with being able to attract developers, I think it's something that might even, you know, if we see success with with Avalanche making this transition, that you might even be able to apply it to something like Arbitrum as well in some in some shape or form. One thing I don't know enough about here is the, like the throughput capabilities of a subnet, because if you were like saying, all right, I'm going to go build my own little KYC chain, say you're. I don't know, say you're BlackRock and you're like, I want to just build a general purpose L1, but you have to verify to get on my chain. Um, like, where would you consider building that? Because you could think about like a an Ethereum-based L2 that just settles down to L2, uh, has the bridge contract on the L1 and settles down to the L1, uh, but uses like, a, it's like, imagine a Validium. So it has its own centralized DA layer because why would I bother paying to Ethereum if I'm going to be a KYC chain anyways? You're already going to have to trust me and know me. And it's like, why? I wonder what the trade-offs between like a Validium on top of Ethereum versus building a subnet are. Like, I, that's that's definitely uh, something I'm I'm not too sure about. But because yeah, when you look at these subnets, you know they do have smaller validator sets. Like, I don't know why that is. Like, out of the box, like it's, I don't think it's a terrible thing by any means. It's just it's a, just a different set of trade-offs. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually wouldn't imagine that if I'm BlackRock or a cohort of different you know institutional players looking to create an app chain, like. I'm making this up. I'm I, I don't converse with these entities regularly, but I would imagine that they're actually not looking towards rollups at all. Like that's probably the last thing. The Avalanche is probably the most risky type of of you know chain that they're willing to create. Um, they have the Evergreen framework or the Evergreen subnet, which gives uh, Avalanche subnet creators the ability to actually like you know in a very modular and easy to set up way set up these like KYC chains. Um, Evergreen is like a framework with different modules that are already kind of support what uh institutional players might need in a chain but you know i think you know roll up we're getting more decentralized we're getting more we're getting less if, if we're on a private to public spectrum right so like you have fully private blockchains that don't ever interoperate in any way with ethereum or cosmos or anything like that you have a four validators that are all run by centralized entities and like that's kind of you know the most centralized and the most decentralized being you know a public blockchain that anyone can uh, permissionlessly validate and permissionlessly use I don't imagine that those players are really ever going to go kind of further than an avalanche subnet or an avalanche evergreen subnet but I think if cosmos offered like an easy way to implement a cosmos chain um like avalanche does that would fulfill KYC requirements and whatnot that now cosmos might be a, a significant competitor in this market as well so you guys mentioned arbitrum there we actually got three governance updates from uh, the arbitrum side of the world that tie in nicely together um, back funding successful steps that didn't make the, like, I guess they did get voted yes, but, and they reached quorum, but they weren't in the top 50 projects. So they're looking for an additional 21.4 million ARB to give to 26 more projects. I believe it was 56 that didn't get an allo. So this would cover about half of them. That one is voting, uh, live right now and should end on 
Tuesday the 14th. We are recording this on Monday the 13th. So by the time this goes live, the result will be solidified. But uh, what do you guys think here? Should we be funding this or not? Man, I have such mixed feelings on this one. Um, my initial thought is that probably not. And I have a bunch of reasons for this. A, you know, the original governance proposal stated that 50 million ARB was going to be the amount that we were going to allocate to incentives by January 31st for this short-term incentive program. First of all, like if we give 25 million more, whatever, a little less, that kind of like goes back on our word. When do we stop? Like, okay, fine. We're, are we going to, you know, what about those that didn't have a chance to get in the op, like into the round one? Um, you know, are we going to keep giving out more R before January 31st or should we kind of stick to our guns? And, you know, it's not that long. It's November 13th. We're talking about like two and a half months. So it, you, we could do, I think it would, might make more sense to wait and to do another incentive round after January 31st. Additionally, if we waited until then, we'd be able to do an analysis or multiple analysis on the, how well these incentive programs worked. And then we'd be able to potentially utilize our better than kind of just giving out these programs. Now, for instance, maybe we learn that gas rebates have a higher retention of users than uh, L giving it to, you know, lending LPs or something. And like, that'll be very, very important and valuable data to have. And then finally, the the entities that would get funded in this round aren't reflective of how voters would have voted had 75 million are been allocated it kind of became this strategic game towards the end of you know you voted to get the protocols you wanted into the into that into that like you know the amount so that uh where they'd get allocated to if there was you know 50 million getting given out for instance blockworks research we only supported 50 million arbon requests so we voted Pure, we only voted yes on those that requested 50 and had there been 75 to allocate, we would have voted very differently. And this is true. I'm positive of all delegates. So, you know, clearly there's a ton of problems with doing it this way. But one thing to note is, you know, if we ran a short-term incentive program round two right now, likely it would be pretty random results as well. I don't think that these protocols have like worse incentive programs than the ones that did get funded or the ones that would get funded in a subsequent round. So it's like, it's kind of just random anyways, who got funds and who didn't. I'm mean, not random, but maybe not based fully on uh, like qualitative analysis of which ones were the best programs. So it's not like these ones are maybe worse than the ones that did get funded. So it's really all about like, okay, do we think that we should up it to 75 million because there was so much appetite because like so many protocols wanted incentives, which I actually think is valid. You know, I think some delegates probably wanted 75 million to start and that that doesn't change now. So, you know, it's a tough one. That's really interesting, Matt. You've been very boots on the ground um, with this with this whole process here, and I think maybe the reason that it was a bit challenging has a lot to do with just like the format that that was in, right? You know, I was listening to an Arbitrum uh, uh, space today that, on the Twitter space that was exactly about this topic, and just hearing other people express the same issues that you had when you're going through all these steps was you, know, you had to give like 15, 20 minutes to each step, and there was a hundred plus steps, and so it's like maybe the system was a little bit broken. And so it's like, it's like a multiple compounding issues here. And so now when you're trying to think about like, how do you backfund these things? I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I definitely don't have a good answer here on, on uh, yes or no. Um, as it pertains to this, at the end of the day, it's 20 million tokens in the grand scheme of things. That's a relatively small number. Uh, but one thing that is worth noting is since the start of the year, since the token generation event, uh, between the Dow treasury and the foundation activity, there's been about an 11% increase in circulating supply. Um, and that's it over the course of about eight or eight or so months since a uh, token generation event. That's like one thing that the community should probably keep in mind is like, you know, when you're emitting tokens from a Dow treasury, that is new supply hitting the market. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's, you know, you're getting the treasury in the hands of the to uh, community is largely a good thing, especially these are like pretty builder focused incentives. And I tend to think that's probably a better way to, to go about this than just like, you know, per se, maybe like an airdrop round two or something like that. Um, so I just, that's what I would say is like, just, you know, keep in the back of your head and like you are emitting new tokens. And so you really have to weigh out the the value of, of doing this. And I tend to think like getting them in the hands of the builders is, yeah, like I said, is a, probably a good strategy. There's a bit of a crazy conversation going on. There is a grant funded by one of Arbitrum's grants programs, Plurality Labs, to do a budget, basically create a budget for how much ARB can we spend without having big price impact on the token. And I forget the exact number, but the, you know, initial report from this what seemed to me like a very rudimentary analysis was that, you know, basically you could emit another hundred something million are by the end of the year and not have it impact the pricing. And this was purely based on order book depth, which I don't think takes into account other things that, you know, could have impact on um, like, you know, flows and, and sediment among the market of, you know, just the idea of this, of having more tokens submitted. 
but uh yeah it is interesting that that they did you know there is this grant outstanding to create budget and that the budget's basically saying that you know we can emit tons more tokens and it won't be a problem that would basically be like doubling or so the amount of total supply that's hit the market since token generation and i don't necessarily think that makes a ton of sense and that's like 20 per 20 percent inflation in a year and again this isn't like a token trying to make money so inflation is probably not even the best word there it's just like supply growth um but you know when you are emitting new tokens you do need net new net new buyers uh that's just something to consider and i haven't seen this analysis so i I don't really know what their their framework was or process was there but again yeah that'd be going from about 11 or so percent inflation to something closer to 20 um I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable just throwing another 100 million tokens out the window. Yeah, I would agree with everything you guys just said and just echo the same points. Um, On to the other one, which kind of is tied into it. One Inch is uh, voting to sell the original ARB airdrop that they got for USDC and then bridge it back to Ethereum. Uh, the vote closes on the 18th and the yes is winning big time right now and quorum's practically reached. Not a ton to say on this one, other than the fact that I do believe most of these tokens ultimately get sold, don't get benefits to the actual L2. Like, I mean, come on, they're bridging back to Ethereum. Like, (laughs) it just seems pretty ridiculous to me. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on it. I mean, this is exactly kind of what my point was earlier when I said you have to just like think about the the impact that you're you're creating when you're issuing new tokens and generally giving them in the hands of the builder is seems to be a better way than just like maybe an airdrop. Um, but not if they just turn around and sell them. So uh, I don't know if they, I think they said this can be a manual sell. So I don't know if they'll do some OTC transactions, to try to minimize their price impact. And again, they are a DEX aggregator. So maybe they have their own, uh, they use their own routing technology. But uh, that's, yeah, like you just got to measure the value of, of what you're getting in return. And, and so like not to go back to the Stips one, but yeah, I think it makes sense to like, I don't necessarily think there's a rush here. I, I would have to like really hear out the argument for why there would be need to be a, a rush to kind of like, mass do this in mass really quickly um but i, I don't necessarily think it's a rush here so I'd, I'd rather like take do some analysis around the quality of, of the impact of of this tip so like for example D- gmx fees were off the charts for uh you know the initial first couple of days when the incentives went live like well, let's look at those token holders like are they what are they doing with the arb incentives that they're getting after they trade with these things are they just turning around and market dumping them because if so like what is that ultimately doing for arbitrum like yeah, it's progressive decentralization for sure but with new issuance and if it just turns around and hits the open market and hits the order books, it's like, what was the net benefit there? Like, I, I don't know. I think you like need to focus on community building and driving long-term staying power really more so than just like some of these short-term plays. Yeah. I think the key words here, opportunistic capital, like money that's just going to come farm and then leave versus getting sticky liquidity and sticky brain power. Um, I think we actually say it in our Arbitrum delegate platform, but there are times when incentive programs and and liquidity farming can be worthwhile endeavors, but generally speaking, most of the time, at least from my perspective, um, you know, they're negative EV endeavors. You're spending more value than you're actually getting. So I strongly agree. Like, you know, not a huge fan of incentives in general unless they're really, really well thought out. That said, Arbitrum is kind of, you know, in my opinion, best tech stack, many L2 today, highest TVL. It's, you know, well positioned, but they're having a tough time attracting developers and i think a lot of very astute people kind of see that uh you know arbitrum struggling in some regards and because of this it makes sense for the dow to be taking big swings and swing for the fences and really do things that you know are high risk high potential reward um incentive programs aren't necessarily what i would look towards for that but i do think it's important to the dow do like really you know try to do things that set it apart from other roll-ups today before uh, it's too late yeah, I totally agree with you there, Matt. The only other thing I'd add is like, I think there is also real value in building goodwill with some of the builders, right? So using, uh, going back to the GMX example, um, you know, they played a very pivotal role in the early days of Arbitrum. And so now that they're getting, a, they got a large dip and they're seeing like very increased fees uh, because of the increased activity around the ARB incentives that they've got and that they're utilizing. And it's like, if you create an uh like a comfortable and exciting place for builders to go, then like you are going to attract those new wave of builders. And like, that is definitely going to be a competition between the L2s of, you know, who gets the best builders to create the best apps to then attract in the, the, uh, the next wave of users. So it does make sense why these incentive programs exist. It's just doing so like increasing the efficiency of them, I think is ultimately the goal here. Yeah. I think it's going to be like a long road until we actually know the optimal way to design a token, use it to incentivize users and stuff. But that's kind of what makes this space so fun right now is we're all just kind of 
figuring it out as we go. <laughs> All right, my internet's pretty shitty and we're running up on an hour and 10 minutes. So I'm going to speed race through these last three governance updates, all related to inflation in some ways. So that's kind of the theme of today. But uh, Adam is looking to cut the max staking yield from 20% down to 10%. And then we also have, shout out Westy for pointing this one out. He saw a conversation in the Discord, which is also available on GovHub on blockworksresearch.com, little self plug. But uh, basically, a uh, proposal to remove SNX inflation entirely with the current inflation rate at 5% annualized. This mixed with base V3 synthetics deployment could be a pretty large catalyst. And then on top of that, you've got 30 million OP up for grabs with retro PGF round three. And obviously synthetics is likely to get an allocation. And then we also have reduced inflation in some way, not really reduced, but more relocated for DYDX. Their beta just went live so you can actually trade. Uh, on DYDX chain, which is super exciting. Matt, I know you're going to love that. Um, and then uh, they're also migrating incentives from DYDX uh, V3 on StarkX over to DYDX chain by winding down those incentives from Epochs 30 to 32. And then, of course, reallocating them to DYDX chain in hopes of migrating user activity over there. DYDX is the one that stands out to me. I am keeping a very close eye. I think the first trade occurred this morning. So fees should be, you know, technically speaking, going back to going back to validators and DYDX token stakers today. There is a chance that there is Zoomy APR on staking DYDX for the first couple of days, first couple of weeks, first couple of months even. Um, so it's something that I'm keeping a close eye. It sucks because I told myself I was going to buy a large spot bag of it kind of to hold forever. I actually like, there's very few coins that I, on, I count on one hand how many coins that I'd actually want, like, you know, long-term exposure to. And DYDX is actually one of them. And I'm kind of, you know, hitting myself as it goes through $3. And I was telling myself that under $2, but, you know, you can't win them all. Um, I would keep a close eye on the trading volume. There's a ton of incentives going to traders. There's a ton of new pairs that could get volume and uh, not a lot of DYDX staked thus far. Well, I think I have to add there is, uh, Sam, you just mentioned three protocols that are thinking deeply about inflation. So... Maybe it is a cost after all, but I'll leave you with that. Thanks again for this excellent. Uh, thanks again for this excellent episode, guys. Be sure to give Garrett a follow on Twitter. Uh, we'll put his Twitter in the show notes. Follow Lightspeed. It's an incredible podcast. Again, it has a little bit of a salon lean, so it's really exciting to kind of get a, you know, a little bit deeper into the things going on in that ecosystem as well. Uh, thanks again, guys, and we will see you next week. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. We hope you really enjoyed it. Wanted to take one more moment to remind you guys about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so be sure to hit the link in the description and use promo code 0x20 to save 20% off on your ticket. We'll see you in London. Be sure to hit us up if you plan on attending.